welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E, which is my new company, make personal care products that go above and beyond just non-toxic to actually be beneficial for, for you from the outside in. I realized years ago that even some of my most naturally minded friends and family members who made an effort to eat organic food and be really cognizant of what they brought into their homes were still using certain certain personal care products, mainly hair care and oral care. And the reason was they weren't willing to sacrifice how they looked and felt just to use natural products. And none of the natural products they were finding really lived up to the conventional products as, as far as how effective they were. So I resolved to change this and realize I had things that I've been making in my kitchen for years that worked just as well and that I could share with other families. And thus, Wellness was born. You've probably heard that what goes on our body gets into our body and that many of the chemicals we encounter end up in our bloodstream. To me, this means non-toxic and safe should be the absolute bare minimum baseline for any products that are in our lives, but I wanted to take it a step further. I wanted it to use this to our advantage, to actually put beneficial ingredients in our hair care toothpaste, personal care products, so that we could benefit our body from the outside in. Why not use that wonderful skin barrier to our advantage? So our hair care is packed with ingredients like nettle, which helps hair get thicker over time. Our dry shampoo has scalp promoting products that really help follicles stay strong. And our our toothpaste, for instance, has a naturally occurring mineral called hydroxyapatite, which is the exact mineral that's on our teeth that's present in strong enamel. So they're all designed to work with the body not against it, to help you have stronger, healthier hair and teeth. We even now have a hand sanitizer that doesn't dry out your hands like many hand sanitizers do. I would be honored if you would check it out, and I would love to hear your feedback. You can find all of our products at wellness.com. That's W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is sponsored by Blue Blocks Glasses. Did you know that blue light damages our eyes and leads to digital eye strain when it comes from artificial sources? Symptoms of digital eye strain can include blurred vision, headaches, and dry, watery eyes. And some people even experience anxiety, depression, and low energy. I personally noticed that when I was exposed to, exposed to blue light after dark, I didn't sleep as well and I felt more fatigued the next day. Blue blocks are the evidence-backed solution to this problem, and they're made under optics laboratory conditions in Australia. They have over 40 styles and come in prescription and non-prescription, so there's truly a pair for everyone. I also love that Blue Blocks is giving back by working in partnership with Restoring Vision in their Buy One, Gift One campaign. So for each pair of Blue Blocks glasses purchased, they donate a pair of reading glasses to someone in need. Really awesome company, really awesome mission, and they have worked wonders for me. You can get free shipping worldwide and save 20% by going to blueblocks.com forward slash wellness mama and using the code wellness mama all one word at checkout make sure you get the spelling right it's b-l-u-b-l-o-x.com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama at checkout hello and welcome to the wellness mama podcast i'm katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com that's my new line of personal care products wellness with an e on the end you can check them all out there This episode is all about something called brainwash, which is a new concept about the gap between knowledge and action and how to actually improve our decision making to reclaim our brain, make better choices without having to fight ourselves, um, without to be less emotionally reactive and less impulsive. 
I'm here with someone whose name you've probably heard before. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and a five-times New York Times bestselling author. He's on the board of directors and a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He's the author of the book Grain Brain, which many of you probably have heard of. And he's a widely recognized expert in a lot of topics, including things like um, Alzheimer's disease and brain health and someone I personally very much respect. I like his work very, very much. And I think that this episode, you will learn a lot from his most recent book is called Brainwash, which he co-authored with his son, who's also a physician. And we go in depth on this today about reclaiming your brain and rewiring it for success. And I think the episode speaks for itself. Tons of practical advice here. So without further ado, let's jump in and learn from Dr. Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome. Well, if this is just uh, the best. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to chat with you today because I think this is a really important topic. I, I know you've written already on so many important topics, and I think people are probably familiar with your work, but I think you're addressing a really important key that often people still struggle with or gets overlooked, and that's this idea of these kind of the gap between knowledge and action, and I think this is a really poignant point for right now because there's so much now information about health and wellness and thankfully so much of this is now mainstream and thanks to your work and others, people understand a lot more of what we should be doing, but yet people are still having trouble actually doing the things that they know they should be doing. And especially this time of year, it can be hard. So walk us through that. Let's start with there. Why are we seeing this gap between knowledge and action? Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question and I, I should have a really snappy answer for you right now, but it's something that I keep thinking about all the time. And, and interestingly, that answer keeps being molded in my mind. And I would say that it's really kind of a, a push and pull uh, between what we want on a visceral level and what we think we should do on more of an intellectual level. In other words, our bodies tell us, for example, that we should eat sugar. Why? Because it's a very powerful uh, survival mechanism. Sugar allowed our ancestors to store body fat and, and therefore survive during times of caloric scarcity, as an example. And yet we know uh, intellectually that eating a lot of sugar in our diets is not the right thing to do, and yet it, it's hard to resist uh, You know, when somebody bring, comes to your house uh, and has baked something specially for you, and you know it's full of sugar, you know it's bad, but there's so many things that are uh, playing with your uh, emotional responses that it's difficult to do the right thing, keep the adult in the room and say no. So why does that happen? Well, the dichotomy here is between areas of our brain that deal with impulsivity, basically giving in to what you want to do right now, versus other areas of your brain that look at our decision-making in terms of not just our current desires, but also in terms of how this decision is going to affect my health, my well-being, uh, my financial stability, whatever it may be, down the line. In other words, future-looking, being able to take a deep breath, weigh other factors aside from just the desire to have the sweet taste, and, and make a decision based upon that. In other words, again, the analogy is keeping the adult in the room to kind of temper our childlike uh, impulsivity and you know, quick desire to satisfy ourselves. And I, I will say one other thing parenthetically, and that is that 
the other aspect of this more sophisticated thought through response is it goes beyond what might be good for me in the longer term and also embraces what might be good for other people, uh, what might be good for other entities around me, like my community and even the planet upon which I live. We call that empathy. And so there are actually brain substrates for these uh, activities. The more impulsive decision-making uh, that says, screw it, <laughs> I'm gonna stay in bed today, watch TV and eat uh, a, box, a dozen uh, glazed donuts or whatever it may be. We all know, pl we have plenty of examples of wrong decision-making, uh, spending too much time on the internet, you name it, uh, not going to sleep on time. But nonetheless, a lot of this decision-making, this impulsivity, is derived from a fairly primitive part of the brain called the amygdala. There are two, so it's amygdalae, the plural, that live in the temporal lobes. In other words, the side of the head, uh, right inside from maybe where the ear lives. These are the you know, primitive areas of impulsive reptilian cause and effect kind of activity. Uh, X goes directly to Y. As opposed to making decisions that kind of bypass this impulsivity center, this self-centered, narcissistic, quick response center, which does have its upsides, I might add, and leverage the ability of another area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex behind your forehead that says, wait a minute, why might I not want to eat this food, stay up late, spend a lot of time on the internet, go out with these people, drink too much, uh, et cetera, uh, spend my money at the racetrack, uh, invest in stocks that I know, are, whatever it may be. Uh, decisions that we know may and probably will not necessarily have a good uh, outcome. So this is this gift that we have, this one third of our frontal, of our, uh, the brain's cortex, uh, which is you know, percentage wise larger than any other animal. You know, the chimpanzee might have 13 or 14% work to a third of our neocortex is this prefrontal cortex. It's a gift that we have as humans that allows us to take a step back and make our decision-making based upon past experience, based upon current knowledge, uh, based upon a variety of factors, and kind of bypassing that gotta eat it, gotta do it, gotta do all the things that I know aren't necessarily good for me, kind of impulsive activity that, frankly, we are seeing a lot of these days um, in, in our society. Gotcha. So it seems like an important first step here is understanding and being able to work with some of our natural tendencies or at least recognize when we need to fight them versus necessarily just thinking they're immediately wrong. So for instance, it's widely understood that we don't need a lot of refined sugar or that this is something we should limit. I think I hear very few people trying to make a case that refined sugar is a good thing that we should be consuming a lot of. That said, statistically, we are still as a population consuming a tremendous amount of refined sugar. And I think it's important to highlight what you said, which is that this is a survival mechanism that throughout history, this is actually an important part of our evolution and that we needed that for survival. The problem is now living in a world where we have constant access to it. Um, we have to learn how to be much more in control of that. I guess that's kind of what you call 
keeping the adult in the room, but is, is that kind of the first step is recognizing that these are in some ways innate human traits rather than thinking that we're inherently wrong for having them in the first place? Yeah, exactly right. And uh, um, I think that, you know, a part of what we really wanted to get across in Brainwash is to kind of offload the blame, the self-blame uh, that is so pervasive where, you know, people wake up the next morning and say, why did I do that? Or uh, eat a big meal and ask themselves, you know, that's with the wrong foods, for example, like sugar, knowing full well that it's, it's not going to pave the way towards health. And then feeling guilty. Why can't I control myself? You know, you have to understand that sugar hacks into our primitive brain to fuel uh, these desires uh, and basically to fill, fulfill these desires, to give us that sense of transient uh, fulfillment. Uh, and that said, when we recognize uh, that you know, there is such an effort to utilize this hack into our primitive brain uh, to make us behave in certain ways, brought about by industry, by adding sugar to the foods that we eat so that they uh, will eat more of them and buy more of those products, you know, the per our, our calling it out is to kind of offload the, the blame, the self-blame, and allow people to realize that, you know, this is being done uh, aggressively, not necessarily even in the background. It's pretty much in the foreground now that, you know, when, when uh, the 70% the of the around 2, uh, 2 million foods uh, sold in uh, America's grocery stores have added sweetener of one form or another, that this is an active attempt to subvert our ability to remain in control. That is what characterizes the so-called Western diet, uh, which is now becoming the global diet. As you know, people are in these, these international food manufacturing companies, just what I just said, the notion of food manufacturing, that whole notion should give us the willies. Food should be manufactured. It should be picked from the ground or wherever it comes from and then consumed. But nonetheless, the alteration, the adulteration of, of foods uh, to make them more, not just more palatable, but more desirable, more able to elicit this uh, need, the perceived need that we have to consume them and, and you know, really working to undermine our ability to make better decisions. This is an active process on the part of uh, these multinational corporations. Everybody knows it. It's what, uh, you know, this is what food science is all about. How can we sweeten, uh, increase the fat content, and add more salt to foods? In fact, there was a book called, that had a, a similar title that looked at how this is, uh, this is happening to sell more product. And it really, you know, once people understand that this is directly uh, tapping into our ability to make the right food decisions, as it were in this case, it begins to let, let uh, gain an understanding that they can perhaps realize that they've been manipulated. And this isn't all their fault. So, you know, we're trying to offload the guilt that people feel when their decision-making is inappropriate in terms of their perception uh, by, you know, recognizing that this has been actively uh, pursued by the by corporate interests uh, similarly it uh, on the internet 
that um, you know the pervasive pop-up ads, the directing of your feed uh, to places where you have visited before, uh, and then with targeted advertisements based upon what your online experience has been in the past, directly hacks into areas where you have shown interest and therefore will have less ability to make good decisions because this is an area that lit your brain up in the past. Now, let me tell you, as I say that it, uh, this is an area that has lit your brain up, companies are now using technology called functional MRI, where they are able to determine exactly how to tweak their advertising so that it lights up the pleasure centers of the brain the most. In days gone by, people who wanted to put an ad on television or wherever it may go, use what was called a focus group. They would get a bunch of people in a room and say, well, which color do you like for the background of our logo? Uh, which message uh, is best to sell uh, XYZ product as far as you're concerned? Now they're putting people in brain scanners and companies are in fact having uh, hiring companies to come to their corporate offices with these functional MRI scanners to determine how exactly they can refine their messages so as best to hack into your brain so that you will continue to buy their products, products that you may not necessarily need or even want. So it seems like the cause and the solution here is multifaceted in that over time, from a, like there's a physical and the mental aspects of this. So from a physical perspective, the more we consume these hyperpalatable foods, the more our body and brain are wired to want these hyperpalatable foods, but also the more we mentally are kind of conditioned to want those things, the more we perpetually want them over time. Whereas it seems from a, a solution perspective, when we can break that cycle and get back to eating actual food versus science experiments described as food or disguised as food, that it kind of breaks that chemical physical cycle within the body. And also over time, we form new habits and new brain patterns that help us avoid those things. Is that, am I kind of getting the just? Very, very, very well done, yes. The more we make, for example, uh, the bad food decisions, the more refined uh, carbohydrates, the more highly processed foods we consume, we all know now that through a variety of mechanisms, not the least of which uh, include changes in our gut bacteria and increased gut permeability, through a variety of mechanisms, we increase a process called inflammation. And as it turns out, inflammation damages the communication between the prefrontal cortex and the more primitive amygdala. We have a superhighway connection between the prefrontal cortex that keeps the amygdala response, the impulsivity area of the brain in check. The prefrontal cortex is in fact the adult in the room. And generally as we mature, the prefrontal cortex matures and gains more and more control over our less developed uh, behaviors. It's, you know, as we see, for example, the decision-making of teenagers, not always appropriate, uh, uh, because that connection between the prefrontal cortex, this top-down control uh, is less well-developed. But we can threaten that top-down control, the ability of this prefrontal cortex to exercise control over this more impulsive part of our brain when there are higher levels of inflammation type chemicals in the body. 
so that when we eat inappropriately, eat a diet as I just described, or in addition, don't get a good night's sleep or repeatedly don't get enough restorative sleep or deprive our bodies of exercise or deprive ourselves of uh, exposure to nature or constantly engage ourselves in stressful situations, we threaten, we directly threaten that connection from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala. There are multiple pathways involved. One of them is called the anterior cingulate. But nonetheless, what we're creating then is a feed-forward cycle whereby making bad decisions creates brain wiring that further enhances the likelihood of worse decisions moving forward, such that, for example, not getting enough sleep threatens that connection. Therefore, what do we do the very next day? We down-regulate the, we turn off, if you will, the ability of the amygdala, or rather, we turn off our regulation of the amygdala by as much as 60%. Not, what I'm saying is just one night of non-restorative sleep is associated with an upregulation, increased activity of the impulsivity center of the brain, bad decisions, by 60% with just one night of non-restorative, of not getting enough restorative sleep. When this continues night after night, not getting enough good sleep, it, at, as we look at food choices and dietary choices, it translates in the research to an approximately 300 increased calorie consumption on a daily basis. And you know, after 10 days, that's a pound of body fat. So, you know, it doesn't take long to realize that uh, that's going to accumulate body fat and what does body fat do? It inhibits our ability to get a good night's sleep. Body fat is profoundly pro-inflammatory. So now that we're not sleeping, we're not making good decisions as it relates to our food, as it relates to our exercise, as it relates getting back to even getting a good night's sleep, because we'll stay up later, we'll watch, uh, we'll expose ourselves to digital media, getting blue light, et cetera, inhibiting melatonin, no good sleep. So what we offer in Brainwash are off-ramps to these very, very dangerous feed-forward cycles. What might that off-ramp look like? Well, you know, we offer a whole 10-day program, but it, it might be that the whole 10 days of exercise, nature exposure, meditation, stress reduction, gratitude journal, dietary change, etc., cetera, is, is a lot to, to uh, think about. On the front end. So what we offer are the small steps, the off-ramps that might work for you as an individual. Maybe for you, it's just looking at the, the environment in which you fall asleep at night. Is it dark enough? Is it cool enough? Does your partner uh, have sleep apnea or does he or she move his or her legs around uh, at night and awaken you? So the, you know, even sleep is a great uh, way of entering into better decision-making. Uh, it might be a dietary change. It might be nurturing your gut bacteria with prebiotic and probiotic foods. It might be getting out and taking a walk around the block, if that's the first step uh, in getting you to, you know, resume exercise. It might be as simple as nature exposure, which is profoundly influential in in re-engaging uh, ourselves in terms of the prefrontal cortex. We know that meditation is a powerful way, uh, as we've seen in multiple uh, techniques of brain imaging, a powerful way 
to light up that prefrontal cortex. And that's the adult in the room. So there are a lot of ways to uh, reestablish this control. Gotcha. Yeah. One thing I love to do as a thought exercise in my own life that's been helpful for me is using the principle of inversion, meaning like often it's easier to, do, to figure out the things related to what we don't want than what we do want. So rather than trying to figure out all the intricacies of how can I be healthy or how can I reduce inflammation, I'll sometimes turn that on its head and say like, okay, well, if I wanted to, how would I create inflammation? Or for my case, it was if I wanted to create autoimmune disease, how would I do that? And that's easier to define of, oh, I would not get enough sleep. I would eat really crappy food. I would be stressed all the time. And hey, that's actually what I did and how I got autoimmune disease. So then you can from there go, well, if that's how you do that, then how do I, can I do the opposite to get closer to what I do want? And from there kind of creating systems that create habits. But walk us through some of these off ramps. How can we build these systems into our lives to start doing things like reducing inflammation? Because certainly it seems like all the data right now is pointing more and more toward inflammation being a common uniting factor in all forms of chronic disease and also in metabolic dysfunction, which we now know is a big factor in kind of long-term results with this virus and with any kind of health condition. So what are some of those tangible ways? I know you have a whole program on this, which I'll link to, but what are some of these tangible ways we can start? Well, again, I'd say that it it, it should be looked upon uh, from the individual in terms of what's going to be the first step. You know, I think one of the most powerful leverage point levers to pull is diet, but that's probably one of the most difficult, though it's the most powerful, maybe the most powerful uh, uh, for people because they've they've known this for a long time and it's probably their their weakest uh, weakest point. So. You know, in dealing, for example, with diabetic, it seems uh, appropriate that we're going to talk about your diet. And I have found that that's really not the way to go uh, because people with diabetes uh, have seen multiple physicians and other types of healthcare provider. And that's exactly where they go. They follow that with exercise. And I think it, it may be surprising, for example, uh, for a type 2 diabetic uh, that you would begin by saying, hey, let's put the diet and exercise on the back burner for the next couple of weeks, let's look at sleep. Or let's look at nature exposure or even uh, the idea of meditation. Because now we're, once that person comes back in a few weeks, they're in a better position then to embrace uh, other modalities like dietary change, like uh, maybe beginning some exercise. Because we've offloaded you know, one very important straw from the camel's back that's inhibiting good decision-making. And you know, then you move uh, to food and you, uh, you look at other, uh, other aspects of their lifestyle. You say, uh, for example, that uh, maybe we need to talk about how much time you're spending uh, in front of uh, a screen. We know that 42% of the time that Americans are awake, they have their eyes fixed on a screen or another, whether that's their, uh, uh, their smartphone, their pad of one form or another, uh, even the television. That's 42% of their waking time. Uh, and, you know, there's not a lot of time that, uh, that we're awake. Let's say it's, you know, maybe if we sleep eight hours, then it's 16 hours in the day. So, you know, it, it, it's a time when people are running on programs that are controlled by others. That's what screen time is all about. It's relinquishing your decision-making. It's relinquishing 
your control. So again, we learn from others uh, and that's hardwired into our genome that we, and we should, uh, that allows us to progress. But uh, these, um, that is a survival adaptation like the desire to eat sweets. But what we're seeing is that these adaptations for our survival are points of, uh, for exploitation from others, from media, from uh, food manufacturers, etc. So, uh, I think that again, to, you know, to to, to uh, hone in on your uh, question, uh, I would say it's really important to see what's going to work for the individual, and I would say to come at this tangentially is a good thing. And rather, you know, if somebody's got a crappy diet, the best place to start is not to address the diet, because you can be sure that uh, that person has had countless diets, has countless books on his or her shelf uh, from A to Z, uh, from the Atkins to the Zone diet, so that's A to Z, you name it, uh, and these diets have uh, failed. Why have they failed? It's not that they're not necessarily good diets, it's that what has failed is the decision-making part to implement whatever that diet may be whether it's keto or paleo or vegan or whatever it may be, it's not that it's a good or bad diet in terms of lowering blood sugar, weight loss, et cetera. It's because the decision-making, the commitment part uh, is lacking. That's what needs the attention. And the moment that people begin to realize that that's what's been taken from them and it's not my fault, boy, that's an epiphany. That's, an, that's a very empowering moment. Yeah, and it gives you a totally different focus and I think is a different approach, like you said, than a lot of the approaches out there and also hopefully reduces um, decision fatigue as well. I know that's something that's been talked about in psychology is that we have a limited amount of decision making and willpower capability. And so when we're constantly depleting that, trying to focus on one system or um, something, I think people have a tendency to fatigue and then have trouble following through. And certainly we see this at the beginning of the year, often people will jump into a new plan and be very able to comply for a certain number of days or even a couple of weeks and then they hit that willpower and decision-making fatigue and then because it was all built up in that they when they fall off the wagon they kind of just revert completely to old ways versus at least keeping part of that so I think that's such a good strategy to have a different focus um, rather than trying to just hone in on the diet even if diet is the part that's going to make the biggest difference do things that help us to have more impulse control and to reduce inflammation makes that easier over time. And I think people are familiar probably with your past work on the brain in general and how we can support it both from that physical perspective and through the, the mental and thought side as well. Um, this is a really, really important topic. I'm so glad that you're addressing it that way. And over time, so basically like by doing that, we're able to sort of rewire the brain to make these changes easier and more lasting. Is that kind of the approach? Exactly. And as we've talked about, uh, you know, over the years, what an amazing process that is. We call that neuroplasticity, where the brain is actually able to uh, enhance the connectiveness, if you will, of, uh, you know, in, in various pathways, one one part to another. And that's, you know, what learning is all about. And the more you do something, you know, it's been said that neurons that fire together, wire together, meaning the more you do something, ultimately these pathways become more and more indelible. It's the process of learning how to swing a golf club, if you will. 
you know, but in just getting back to our, 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 mo- our previous discussion a moment ago, and that is that the idea of addressing uh, a person who needs to correct his or her diet by addressing their diet is extremely, with all due respect, myopic. It's one punch uh, as opposed to the one-two punch of diet and exercise. You know, that's pretty well accepted. Okay, diet. We're going to talk about diet and exercise. But I'm saying not a one or one-two punch, a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven punch. Bring as many things to bear, not on the decision that's made, but on the mechanism that underlies decision-making. So, you know, when I uh, speak to groups of uh, physicians, of doctors, often, you know, I I have slides that show uh, Mr. Jones who comes into the the office and he is, he's overweight. He's, let's say, type 2 diabetic and he's making bad decisions. And I try to make the point that we're not trying here to labor over what are the decisions. Should a diabetic be on a ketogenic diet, a low carb diet over a long period of time, uh, et cetera, what are the decisions are, but let's take a step back and focus on the decision-making because the biggest problem in these individuals is their ability to make the decision in the first place, not figuring out what the decision should be, not figuring out the number of calories derived from fat, carbohydrates, and protein and micronutrients. That's, that's really, with all due respect, not the hard part. That's not where they fail. The hard part, as any healthcare provider will tell you, is called compliance. And when patients don't have that ability to follow through, they get labeled as being non-compliant. In the doctor's notes, it says, well, Mrs. Jones has been non-compliant with our recommendations. You know, basically pointing the finger, it's not you know, at her, and she goes home or he goes home and feels awful because it's, again, uh, this pattern repeating itself of self-blame, and that is so destructive. We've got to recognize that our ability to make good decisions is actively being taken away from ourselves by others. And uh, I mentioned earlier how our survival adaptations are, again, these entry points for our own exploitation by others. And step one, step one is to recognize that that's being done every single day. So once that happens, you realize that you can kind of you know, offset the uh, self-blame. Yeah, I think you're right. That's such a part of that vicious cycle and um, probably what leads to like the impulse thing. I think that's another big key of this is getting to point, putting systems in place to have better impulse control. And like you said, to use our prefrontal cortex to our advantage versus being trapped in that more impulsive side. This episode is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E, which is my new company make personal care products that go above and beyond just non-toxic to actually be beneficial for, for you from the outside in. I realized years ago that even some of my most naturally minded friends and family members who made an effort to eat organic food and be really cognizant of what they brought into their homes were still using certain, certain personal care products, mainly hair care and oral care. And the reason was they weren't willing to sacrifice how they looked and felt 
just to use natural products and none of the natural products they were finding really lived up to the conventional products as, as far as how effective they were. So I resolved to change this and realize I had things that I've been making in my kitchen for years that worked just as well and that I could share with other families. And thus Wellness was born. You've probably heard that what goes on our body gets into our body and that many of the chemicals we encounter end up in our bloodstream. To me, this means non-toxic and safe should be the absolute bare minimum baseline for any products that are in our lives, but I wanted to take it a step further. I wanted it to use this to our advantage, to actually put beneficial ingredients in our hair care, toothpaste, personal care products, so that they, we could benefit our body from the outside in. Why not use that wonderful skin barrier to our advantage? So our hair care is packed with ingredients like nettle, which helps hair get thicker over time. Our dry shampoo has scalp promoting products that really help follicles stay strong. And our, our toothpaste, for instance, has a naturally occurring mineral called hydroxyapatite, which is the exact mineral that's on our teeth that's present in strong enamel. So they're all designed to work with the body, not against it, to help you have stronger, healthier hair and teeth. We even now have a hand sanitizer that doesn't dry out your hands like many hand sanitizers do. I would be honored if you would check it out and I would love to hear your feedback. You can find all of our products at wellness.com. That's W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is sponsored by Blue Blocks Glasses. Did you know that blue light damages our eyes and leads to digital eye strain when it comes from artificial sources? Symptoms of digital eye strain can include blurred vision, headaches, and dry, watery eyes. And some people even experience anxiety, depression, and low energy. I personally noticed that when I was exposed to, exposed to blue light after dark, I didn't sleep as well and I felt more fatigued the next day. Blue blocks are the evidence-backed solution to this problem and they're made under optics laboratory conditions in Australia. They have over 40 styles and come in prescription and non-prescription, so there's truly a pair for everyone. I also love that Blue Blocks is giving back by working in partnership with Restoring Vision in their Buy One, Gift One campaign. So for each pair of Blue Blocks glasses purchased, they donate a pair of reading glasses to someone in need. Really awesome company, really awesome mission, and they have worked wonders for me. You can get free shipping worldwide and save 20% by going to blueblocks.com forward slash wellness mama and using the code wellness mama, all one word at checkout. Make sure you get the spelling right. It's B L U B L O X.com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama at checkout. Talk a little bit more about the program that you guys have and how people can find that to start rewiring their brain. I will. Um, but before I get there, I want to just, I think, pick up on where you may have been going a moment ago, and that is the idea of rewiring. So we do, the, we do whatever it is we want to do, whatever activity we want to become more and more indelible in the, brain, in the brain, we do. Whether it's learning to eat right, getting more exercise, learning how to swing a tennis racket, you name it, learning how to play the piano. We then do the activity, but we also at the same time have to do what we can to enhance uh, the biochemical pathways, the genetic pathways that allow then this connection of one brain cell to the next, this uh, neuroplasticity that I mentioned earlier, or synaptoplasticity, which is the formation of these synapses between brain cells that becomes more indelible the more we do something. And I just would mention that we can enhance that process by increasing in our bodies the presence of a particular chemical called BDNF. It stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It comes from the brain 
that's where it's derived, neurotrophic, good for neurons, factor. This is a chemical that enhances the, this growth of uh, connections in the brain when we're engaged in an activity. I will mention it also enhances the growth of new brain cells, which we call neurogenesis. So the question that people would want answered would be what can I do today to increase uh, neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, paving the way, uh, priming the soil then for my ability to rewire my brain. Uh, the best thing that anyone can do to increase BDNF is to get more exercise. Aerobic exercise dramatically increases BDNF. It's increased on a ketogenic diet. It's increased with consuming DHA, which is an omega-3 found in fish oil. There's an algae form as well. It's increased with consuming uh, turmeric. So there are a lot of ways uh, that people can create the, uh, nurture the soil so such that now when I'm ready to uh, increase my connection to the prefrontal cortex, it's going to be, uh, it's going to happen uh, more appropriately, more indelibly. So, so then we engage in the activities. And uh, as we described in Brainwash, we have a 10-day plan that looks at and describes how we can start looking at our, our uh, reconnection with nature, our reconnection with other people. Uh, we are social beings. The dietary changes that are so uh, important to lower inflammation. Why? Because inflammation threatens the connection. Uh, looking at uh, our sleep in a you know, very uh, in-depth way. We explored that extensively. And, you know, truthfully, uh, I, and we, we clearly came out in favor of wearable devices that can look at your sleep in terms of the dynamics of your sleep, the characterization, not just of the time that you are asleep, but the various parts of sleep that we know are important. Deep sleep, for example, uh, is, is the time that our brains clean house, if you will, activation of what is we call the lymphatic system. REM sleep for consolidation and contextualization of memory. How long does it take to go to sleep? What is your total length of sleep? I happen to wear a device called an aura ring, which gives me a great sense as to, you know, not just how was my sleep last night, but also allows me to tinker with it a little bit to see if eating later is going to affect my sleep, which in my case, it dramatically does. Uh, if I have a, a bigger lunch or a bigger dinner, uh, how late I work on the computer, uh, do I wear blue light blocking glasses, uh, how cold do we set the room, all the various factors allows you to see what works for you, uh, how to individualize your approach. Because, you know, one thing is for sure, uh, in this age of uh, personalized medicine, we're all different. Uh, there are some broad stroke recommendations, that's for sure. But the subtle nuances of, for example, why you may not be getting enough restorative sleep and therefore disconnecting from your prefrontal cortex are, are different from the next person. So I think ultimately, you know, the decision has to be uh, about doing the things that allow us to reconnect. So we describe in the book what's called disconnection syndrome on multiple levels that this disconnection syndrome is what we've been talking about, this disconnection of the amygdala, the impulsivity center from the prefrontal cortex, the more adult long-term thinking center. That's disconnected when that pathway is threatened. Uh, our disconnection from our microbiome, the disconnection that we have 
uh, from our genome. We know that our day-to-day -day life choices, lifestyle choices affect our gene expression, uh, our disconnection from each other, and even our disconnection from the planet upon which we live. So it's all about reconnecting. And uh, most importantly, I would say that, uh, you know, the two areas where we need the most reconnection are reconnecting to the prefrontal cortex. That's, you know, really a kind of a neurophysiological uh, reconnection. And I would say also reconnecting to our DNA. You know, the, the foundation of the so-called paleo movement was first predicated on this, this notion that here we have our genome that really hasn't undergone any significant change uh, in 50,000 years, 70,000 years. And it has evolved over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to, do, to allow us to survive. That's what our genome does. It allows us to reproduce and, and continue on as a species. It is in intimate relationship with our environment. And our environment includes not just you know, the climate, but the food that we eat, the activity we get, the sleep that we have, the stress that we're under, the interaction with others, our social uh, interactions, all influence day in and day out the expression of our DNA for better or for worse. Now, the relationship to a particular environment is one that has remained static for hundreds of thousands of years. Suddenly, just now, in, in the last second of our time on Earth, this relationship has been powerfully threatened by challenging our DNA with signals coming from foods, the likes of which our DNA has never seen, by challenging our DNA from signals from our gut bacteria, which have been altered in ways that have never been described. We know what our ancestors' microbiomes, gut bacteria, look like. We have the ability through technology to evaluate fossilized teeth and fossilized stool that is found in caves with fossils of our distant ancestors to determine what their microbiome bacteria must have looked like because we're able to collect the DNA from these fossils. And what we find when we do that are two things. Number one, that the, the makeup of the gut bacteria remained very static for thousands and thousands of years and that the makeup of those bacteria is similar to what we see in uh, cultures that haven't really been westernized. Uh, there are a few of those that still remain on the planet. So the point that I'm making is that this sacred relationship that we have with our DNA is unlike anything that was part of my education. We were told that DNA is what we get from our ancestors is uh, locked in a glass case and determines everything about us. And we now know that that is absolutely not true. We know that the science of epigenetics tells us that moment to moment, we influence the expression of our DNA in a good way or a bad way. We can get back to what you mentioned earlier. We can enhance inflammation. We can enhance autoimmunity. We can basically shorten our lives just by tinkering with the expression of our DNA. At the same time, we know that we can cause our DNA to express things that are good, good for us. 
we can activate biochemical pathways uh, that code for disease resistance and longevity just by making better choices. So we've come full circle. We've come back to decision-making and, and how we can make better decisions. Yeah, and just to weigh in on that, I think you're right. I, to highlight, we are all different. That's been one of the big lessons for me in the last couple of years is just how individualized and personalized we each are. But at the same time, like you said, there are some universal things that are largely generally generally applicable. And I'm with you that I think sleep is a huge one of those. And I'm yet to find any expert who is making a case that we can be much healthier with less sleep or poor quality sleep. Um, but the specifics of how to get great sleep do seem to vary somewhat from person to person. Um, like you, I, I also find I do better when I don't eat after dark, um, when I'm careful of my light exposure. I found, for instance, things like jumping in my cold plunge at night before bed actually really improves deep sleep. Although that's not going to maybe be the same for everyone. I also use a chili pad for that same reason, like you mentioned, with the temperature. And then some things I found over time, like getting enough protein early in the day seems to improve sleep quality. At night, I think there's a lot of experimentation when it um, for each of us when it comes to what are going to be those factors that really move the needle on sleep for us. But I think we've probably all also experienced, to your point, how much different we feel on a night of great sleep versus a night of poor sleep and how much easier it is to make those good decisions when we have our, our tank full from a really good night of sleep. So I love that you brought it back to that and tied it into decision-making. Um, such an important point. I'm a big fan of the aura ring as well. But like you said, you've made a case for all of the different factors that go into this. And I know you do have um, a program that helps people go even deeper on this. So um, I, I would be remiss if we didn't at least mention that before we wrap up. So how can people find that? That program is available in Brainwash. That's a book that is available everywhere, uh, whatever online or uh, bookstore you want to go to, that's where you'll find it. It's in, I guess, 15 languages now, so that's a good thing. And you know, again, the message there is that we first have to set up this, the platform for better decision-making, and then making those decisions is going to be facilitated. And also, as I mentioned at, at the beginning of our time together, that it's really uh, important to reveal that there's great value for others in manipulating our decision-making. Once you get that, once you recognize that that is happening, my goodness, uh, a light goes on and you realize that, hey, that's not going to continue in my life. I'm going I'm to grab the reins of control here and, uh, and, and really begin to control my destiny as opposed to, you know, having other people manipulate my choices and my destiny of their own good. And I would say to do that lovingly, uh, not, not aggressively, uh, not in a castigating way, but do it with a deep breath uh, and, you know, smiling, a smile on your face and, uh, and make the decision that you're going to move on for, for better things in your life. I mean, you know, that's what, that's what you're doing. That's what, you know, it's why you have uh, this social outreach is to give people tools to have a better outcome. And what, you know, what we're trying to do is really focus on that ability that they have to use the tools that people like yourself are giving them. That's the big stumbling point. So again, the program and everything we're talking about is of course in the book Brainwash and available everywhere. 
Awesome. Yeah, like you said, available everywhere. I'll also link to it at wellnessmama.fm for any of you guys who are driving or exercising. All of the links to everything we talked about will be there. Another somewhat related but a little bit unrelated question I love to ask at the end of interviews is if there is a book or a number of books besides your own that have had a profound impact on your life that you would recommend, and if so, what they are and why. Gee, that's, that's hard to say. Uh, it, so in my position, people ask for blurbs or supportive, I guess, supportive comments in their books. So I get uh, four or five books a week to read. Uh, I'm actually uh, reading a new book by Dr. Uh, Dr. Robert Lustig that isn't out yet. So I'm probably not going to tell you the name, but I, I found that book to be incredibly inspiring. I think one of the most inspiring books is a book, book called the, the Disease Delusion uh, by Dr. Jeffrey Bland. And it, it really challenges us to think of uh, think about the whole model that we engage in terms of health and wellness and even the practice of medicine, that we focus on the, this sort of artificial uh, notion that, um, you know, we're good until a disease happens. And it, it really, um, you know, our entire health structure and purveying health and wellness structure seems to be geared at targeting disease. You know, we talk about the various health care plans that are offered to people, whether it's Obamacare or the next iteration, it's all about health care. And, and, you know, what Dr. Bland calls to our attention is, no, it's about disease care. And you think about it, he's right, that, you know, really what health insurance and uh, Medicare, et cetera, are all about is taking care of you when you get sick. And uh, Dr. Bland submits, as do many of us, that you know, our focus really needs to be on extending the health span and, low, and reducing the time in our lives when we are in the disease span part. So really focusing on keeping people healthy, I think is profound. So I recently read The Telomere Effect by Dr. Eppel, a similar kind of uh, discussion there that you know we need to as in her case she talks about how it's reflected by the length of our telomeres but her recommendations her lifestyle recommendations I think are very important so um those are two very important uh books uh in my life i, I would say that um perhaps on a more spiritual level um siddhartha uh was always uh and remains uh, a meaningful book for me because I've sort of seen uh, myself as seeking and learning along the way, and hopefully that will continue. Wonderful. I will link to all of those in the show notes as well for people for continued reading. I'm always looking for book recommendations myself, and I'm going to order several of those. Um, Dr. Perlmutter, it's always a pleasure. You're such a wealth of knowledge. Thank you, as always, for sharing your time today, and I hope that we have the chance to have more conversations here in the future. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. And let me, again, thank you for having me on your show today. And thank you guys, as always, for listening, for sharing your most valuable resource, your time with both of us today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.